And welcome back to Pushing the A. Here in what is going to be a mammoth chapter with a little white noise from the dishwasher in the background. Let's see how annoying this is. Alright, it's not that bad. Uh, today we're going to be covering literally all of World War One, which is interesting. Before we get going, you know, I'm just going to stand up and move where I'm podcasting from. Okay, that better? I think that's that's a lot better. All right. If the introductory song, Wilson by Fish, was not giveaway enough, we are going to be covering chapter 29, which is all of World War One, all that good old Wilsonian idealism. So uh, let's get right down to it. Let's get into the nitty-gritty. Let's get this show on the road. Subsectional numero uno. So, Woodrow Wilson was elected at some point. He was the second Democrat to be elected to office since 1861. I believe he was elected in 1916, though don't quote me on that. I'll check. Woodrow Wilson elected. He was elected in 1912 and in 1916. Uh, Spoiler alert. He was the second Democrat to ever be elected since the year 1861. He was a man from the South. He admired the Confederates greatly. Um, He believed that the country would function best if the masses were informed and they could determine their own fate. He was a religious guy. Um, He also sets this idea that the president's job is to lead Congress, um, and he's happy to appeal over the heads of legislatures to the people that they are responsible to, in name at least. Um, He doesn't have that Roosevelt personality. It's not strong. He's not exciting. He's an academic. He doesn't really appeal to the common man. So let's talk tariff. In 1913, Wilson wants to attack what he calls the triple wall of privilege. So that's the banks, that is the tariffs, and that is the trusts. Uh, So he starts off with the tariff and he delivered a direct message to Congress. Keeping in mind, this has really never been done before. This is also the forerunner of what we now think of as the State of the Union address. He shall from time to time, blah, blah, blah. Um, And he goes to Congress and he says, hey, let's get a lower tariff up in here. Uh, So the House then goes and passes this Underwood Tariff Bill, which lowers the rates. However, as with most tariffs, the lobbyists come in from all around Washington. It's like the tax bill today where, you know, you you don't really know what's going to be in the bill until the last minute, until every lobbyist has gotten their say. Um, And then instead of just letting it happen like most presidents, um, Woodrow Wilson says to United States citizens, hold your representatives accountable. Um, And by doing that, he gets the bill that he wants. Import fees go down. He also is able to establish the first graduated income tax which is taxing people over $3,000 income yearly and plus. Um, and that's from the 16th Amendment. And it brings in a lot more money than this new lowered tariff. So the next thing he wants to attack are the banks. So the country has outgrown its previous system, which was from the Civil War, the National Banking Act. Um, the currency is over-concentrated and unmovable in times of crisis. Um, this congressman, Arsene Pujo, says, the banks are definitely hiding stuff from us. Um, a, Ma- a Massachusetts attorney, last name Brandeis, writes this book, Other People's Money, about sort of how screwed up the whole system is. 
In June 1913, Wilson goes back to Congress and gives him a message, says, hey, it's time to reform the banks. Um, we need to decentralize it and then give it all to the government. The Republicans want just one big old private bank. So in 1913, that gets done with the Federal Reserve Act, uh, where there's a board and they oversee 12 sort of um, regular districts. And then there is one centralized bank. One cent banked bank, uh, and they have authority over the whole thing, and they can issue paper money in the time of need. So we've gotten the banks, we've gotten the tariff. Time for the trust. So goes back to Congress, gives a third speech, um, and that leads to the FTC Act, the Federal Trade Commission Act of 1914. Um, and with that, the president basically appoints a commission that sort of looks at interstate commerce, they can crush monopoly when they see it fit, and they can end unfairness in the market. Next comes the Clayton Antitrust Act, um, which basically says you can't have these interlocking directorates where you have people from different companies on different directorates, um, and you can sort of all work as one giant company. Um, he says, or the act says, no more price discrimination, no more holding companies. They also say that labor cannot be prosecuted, that strikes are legal. The judiciary system disagrees. So the peak of Wilsonian progressivism was just this huge, huge, huge amount of um, acts and laws, sort of not New Deal scale, but he has the Federal Farm Loan Act, which gives credit to farmers and has the Warehouse Act of 1916, which allows farmers to take out loans based on staple crops, and the La Follette Seaman's Act, which allows for better wages and treatment of sailors, the Workingmen's Compensation Act of 1916, which says that civil service employees get benefits in disability, and there's no more child labor in interstate commerce, the Adamson Act, eight-hour days on interstate trains, the Brandeis is nominated to the Supreme Court. He's the first Jewish man on the Supreme Court. Wilson's still a racist. We should not forget about that. Um, also passed some other laws. Uh, makes more agricultural programs readily available in colleges. He adds more highways to, I was going to say the roads, but he really is building new roads. So yeah, a lot of great progressive stuff going on. Um... Foreign policy is a little more iffy with Wilson. He's not aggressive. He's anti-dollar diplomacy, which we established earlier in Chapter 28. He's anti-imperialist. Um, and so he says, you know what? We're not going to do any more foreign investing. Um, we're not going to really support any more of these foreign investments that we've already made. We're going to get right out of China. Congrats on having your land back. Um, he tells Congress to repeal the Panama Canal Tolls Act, which the book doesn't specify what it is, but you can only assume that it gets him out of imperialism. Um, then comes the Jones Act, which basically is um, Wilson saying, let's get the hell out of the Philippines. And then he realizes that he's racist and doesn't want the Philippines to have control of their own country and is worried about the government. So the U.S. stays there. In Haiti, when the president is killed, the Marines come in and they stay there for 19 years to protect the U.S. is possessions, U.S. is? U.S. possessions, um, and it all leads to a treaty where basically the U.S. is overseeing the police and they have a similar arrangement in the DR. They buy the West Indies from Denmark. Um, the United States 
has a lot of the Caribbean at this point. When you go and look in Mexico, um, the United States is definitely exploiting it at this point where they're taking their oil and their railroads and their mines and they're investing about a billion dollars, but the people of Mexico are not seeing any of the benefits. So um, a revolution comes up. The initial revolutionary president is killed. He's replaced by Victoriano Huerta, who then receives the support of the United States ambassador to Mexico. Um, in the meantime, about a million Mexicans are coming to the United States, or the Texas, New Mexico, Arizona area, um, as well as California, and this weird border culture develops, which is an interesting side effect of this all. Um, Americans, though, are concerned about their property in Mexico, and these calls to intervene, especially from W.R. Hearst, who's a publisher and a rancher, um, really wants people, really wants the United States to get involved to protect its stuff. Wilson says, you know what, Mexico, just, just do the right thing. He fires an ambassador. He also doesn't recognize the new government. Um, and he's, you know, like, we need to teach them how to elect a good man, which is, I, I don't know. Um... In 1914, he gives arms to the rivals of the new government. Um, so Americans are arrested, they're freed immediately, but then they don't get a 21-gun salute, which really um, pisses off Wilson. So he goes and seizes Veracruz, which is a bit of an overreaction. This is a Tampico incident because the Americans were arrested in Tampico. Um, Argentina, Brazil, and Chile offer to mediate the conversation or the dialogue between the United States and Mexico. Uh, then suddenly Huerta dies of stress and this guy, my handwriting is terrible. Carranza, Car, Car, I think it's, that's two ends. Carranza takes over. Um, Pancho Villa, who's a rival of Carranza or something like that. Don't, don't cite that name folks. Um, goes out, he kills 16 Americans in Mexico, he kills 19 Americans in New Mexico, he really wants a war. Um, J.P. JP Morgan, no. Uh, Jay Pershing breaks up his band. Germany was sort of low-key thinking about trying to help Huerta. Um, Villa remains uncaptured. The United States just says, you know what, we're not really interested in this anymore because... Big stuff is about to happen in other places. For instance, in Europe, a Serb kills the heir to the Austrian-Hungarian Hungarian throne. Talk to Ryan Lipford about that if you're interested. Um, and that starts World War One, which basically is the Serbs, the Brits, the Russians, the, Fran the Franks, the French, um, and company versus the Germans, the Austrian-Hungarians, the Turkish, and the Bulgarians. Uh, in other words, the Allies versus the Central Powers. America is neutral and they are smug and they are happy to be neutral. But both sides are trying to woo over the U.S. So the British are trying to make this claim like, hey, you basically are mini versions of us. We're the same place. You know, we have a very similar culture. We control the radio waves and the cables. Um, so we're just not going to send over any bad information about the Allies. On the other hand, Germans have all these expats. So there are all these German immigrants living in the United States, a lot in the Midwest, a lot in the cities. Um, it's about 11 million, and a lot of them are pro-central powers, um, which leads to a little anti-German sentiment towards the beginning of things. Um, there's this idea that the Kaiser, who's the leader of Germany, is an autocrat, 
potential of German agents carrying out violence on the United States. Also, the British are blocking travel um, and trade with the Germans. So the British are basically diverting U.S. ships before they get to Germany. Um, there's a small recession going on before all this. The British and the French then start ordering a bunch of war goods, and that ends very quickly. J.P. Morgan lends the Allies about $2.5 billion. U.S. vessels are being forced into British ports, so the Germans say, you know what? We're done with this. We want to trade with you, too. We're going to have a submarine war in the British Isles. Um, Wilson is just like, you know what? Let's claim neutrality. Uh, let's claim that we have the right to be there for trade, and let's hope for the best. Um, the east of the U.S. is very concerned about this. They don't like this idea that the German submarine, and no one has, no one knows what a submarine is. Like, the war laws are completely outdated regarding submarines. There's, no one has ever seen anything like this. So, for all they know, a submarine could come through the Hudson River and take over New York City. Obviously not, but, you know, it's like, well, one thing could lead to another. Um... German-U.S. trade hits a lull, obviously. Um, the Germans say, you know what, we're not going to hit anything that's neutral on purpose. And in 1915, the U-boats began sinking ships. They start with 90, including the... Can I remember if it's the Lithuania or the Lusitania? One of those two. Um, where about 100 and either 78 or 128 Americans, let me check... Hundred twenty-eight Americans tried to posit the app is terrible. Um, Hundred twenty-eight Americans die in the melee. Um, they are annoyed. The United States is annoyed um, because the ship was carrying ammo to the British. They didn't think it was a justified attack, nonetheless. Wilson lightly scolds Germany. He says, don't do that again. Uh, the Secretary of State is like, that's too extreme for me. I'm out of here. Teddy Roosevelt is like, what the hell are you doing? You need to launch the nukes. We don't know what those are yet, but launch them. Um, the British boat Arabic sinks. Um, two Americans die on that. The Germans say, you know what? Okay, we'll, we'll warn you next time we come and sink your ships. We promise you. And the Americans are like, okay, we can deal with this. Um, and then they go and promptly break that by sinking the French boat, the Sussex. Woodrow Wilson basically says, renounce this tactic or we will not have diplomatic relationships anymore, which doesn't sound that big of a deal, like that big of a deal, until you realize that generally countries that go to war with each other typically don't tend to have diplomatic relationships with each other. Uh, Germany says, okay, but if we're going to keep doing this, then you need to tell the Allies they need to change their blockade strategy so we can trade with you. Wilson sort of ignores that. Um, Germany, if they decide that Wilson ignoring that is a problem, they can go and they can say, this is grounds for war, and they can trigger a war at any moment, if so they choose. 1916, the Bull Moose Party, uh, we're going right into politics here, like jumping all around. Last chapter 27, we jump a continent to continent here, we're just jumping thing to thing. Roosevelt is nominated by the Bull Moose Party. He refuses because he wants the Republicans to be held together. So they nominate Charles Lee Hughes, who's a New York liberal on the Supreme Court, um, runs this campaign on trusts and tariffs and Mexico. 
Wilson knows that he was a fluke, that he got in because the Republicans were so split. So he gets very progressive. He starts the slogan, he kept us out of war. On election night, Charles E. Hughes wins the East. Um, and that was before people stayed up until 11 to watch the election. So everyone's like, hey, we have Hughes as the president now. Um, and then the West and the Midwest come in and they're not as pro-war as the East, who's very concerned about submarines. Um, they all come in for water rules, and then California pushes him over, and he wins 277 to 254 by about 600,000 popular votes. Um, the mandate there being the majority of the country, uh, at least in terms of land area, wants to stay the hell out of war. Tough luck. On January 22nd, 1917, Woodrow Wilson says we need to have peace without victory in this war, that neutral rights must prevail. Um, he basically says we need to have diplomatic relations um, here to make this happen. Um, if you don't hurt us, we won't go to war. If you do hurt us, we will go to war, which is a very simplistic way of saying things, now that I hear it out loud. Um, Germany basically responds with this to say, um, we're going to sink American ships now, and we want basically Britain to give up before you guys get involved. Um, Wilson tries to push something through that allows merchant ships to be armed. A filibuster prevents that from happening, so that's interesting. On March 1st, 1917, the Zimmerman note comes out, um, which a German secretary basically is bringing up the possibility, what if we ally with Mexico and in turn they get Arizona, Texas, New Mexico back? Um, another four unarmed U.S. ships are being sunk in March. The U.S. still is refusing to fight back. This whole, um, we aren't going to fight you until you fight us thing it turns out not to even work because they don't even want to fight back. Um, suddenly then the Tsar is kicked out of Russia and the entire complexion of the war changes because now it is a war about democracy. And it is a war in which the United States can genuinely say we are fighting for democracy against autocracy. Um, so on April 2nd, a war declaration is declared. Neutrality has completely failed, is the lesson here. There's also this idea that Wall Street and arms makers were sort of responsible for this war. Um, they actually liked neutrality better, supposedly according to the book, because it helps them. They can buy from both sides, and both sides can buy from them. Um... Eventually, the United States realizes that if the Germans are going to keep killing our civilians, we really just cannot remain this neutral. It just does not work on a fundamental level. So, um, that doesn't mean that the war is popular. At first, Wilson was still pretty neutral. Six senators vote against the Declaration, 50 congressmen. Um, it's a war to be safe from suburbs. Suburbs. <laughs> Save me from only Maryland. Um, it's a war to be safe from submarines which means that the Midwest is very not interested because no one's getting into Lake Michigan. Um, so Woodrow Wilson then pushes it on. This is a religious thing. This is about righteousness. We're here for the ideals and a democratic world order. Um, and he does legitimately believe in those things. Um, and he thinks that these wars and all wars are a bad idea. And he thinks if they can just preserve democracy, then they never have to deal with this again. Um, and Americans by and large, um, do agree with this, and they buy into it, no pun intended. 
Um, and, you know, people are suddenly going out in the streets like, autocracy's terrible, hang the Kaiser, blah, blah, blah. So Wilson, now that he knows he's um, in this war, decides to become basically, he doesn't decide to become, he de facto becomes the ally leader, at least on a moral level. Uh, so in January 1918, he gives the famous 14 points address, um, which is half trying to keep Russia involved, but also half trying to keep minorities hopeful um, that they might get something out of this war. So he says, they're not going to be secret treaties anymore. We're going to have freedom of the seas. No nation's going to have economic barriers between each other. We're going to get rid of the armament tax. We're going to change colonial claims. And by doing this, he delegitimizes the idea of empire um, and opens a gate to independence for all these former colonies. And minorities are kind of excited about this. Um, the chief crowning, crown achievement of this all, the crown jewel, is his idea for the League of Nations, which is all the nations are together in a league. Some of the allies who are empire nations are a little less excited by this idea of getting rid of all of the colonies. Um, the United States needs to get people excited about this war, otherwise they're not going to win. So George Gill leads the Committee on Public Info to try and sell the United States on war and to try to sell the world on Wilson. So he sends about 75,000 men out to speak. They're all very patriotic. Builds, builds billboards, he brings out leaflets and pamphlets. What's the difference? I don't know. He makes movies about the Kaiser that show him in a bad light. Army songs that are very happy pro-army gay troops songs. Uh, the nation is pumped. Wilson um, might have been a little oversold. People might have been expecting a little too much, but at the time it worked. Um, so... Back to this idea of the German-Americans that are there. There's about 8 million German-Americans, um, and they're accused of spying and sabotage and what's going on with these people. So Germans are being tarred and feathered, um, and no more German things, no more German beer and books and language, etc. Uh, and the Espionage and Sedition Acts in 1917 and 18, respectively, um, basically put up anti-war socialists and German-Americans and the international workers of the world all up for grabs. Um, Eugene V. Debs, who's a socialist, is put in jail for 10 years, leader of the international workers of the world, leader, no, sorry, Eugene V. Debs is just a socialist leader, the international workers of the world, leader Haywood is also put in jail. Um, pardons are given out later. And there's this case, Shens versus U.S., Shekins versus U.S., it's one of these things. Let me check. Schenck versus Schenck versus U.S. Okay, good, good handwriting, Will. Um, which basically says that if there is a clear and present danger, then the First Amendment can be ignored. Rather interestingly. So, the U.S. is very unprepared to fight this war. They're useless, frankly. They're unorganized. They don't know how much steel and powder they're actually capable of making. They don't want the government running the economy um, and so the government stays out of it, and then they realize to win this war, we need the government involved in the economy. So on in March 1918, the War Industry Board is established. Um, federal government gets involved in economic planning. Herbert Hoover, here at the time, runs the Food Administration. Instead of rations, he does propaganda. So there's Meat Free Monday, there are Victory Gardens, farm production goes up, food exports go up. Um... Alcohol, pro 
alcohol production is restricted, partially because it's wasteful, partially because it's German, sort of a stepping stone to prohibition, which the book jumps all around. The 18th Amendment does it. Um, the War Industries Board also oversees production quotas, and they allocate raw materials, and they set prices for those materials and the food for government purchase. They take over the railroads. Um, they establish daylight savings. All of these efforts, basically, so the economy can be running at this maximum efficiency speed. It's either go to the war or go to the factory at this point. Um, the American Federation of Labor says, you know what, we're going to support going to work. Uh, they have three million members, and their wages are pretty much raised around across the board. They do not, however, get the right to bargain collectively. Um, also, inflation is just outpacing the gains that they're making. So there are some 6,000 strikes. The international workers of the world are anti-war, anti-bad conditions. In 1919, 250,000 steel workers strike for collective bargaining. Um, and then 30,000 African-Americans are brought in to collapse the strike, um, which is a nice little s segue. It's a real good segue into um, the city of the Great Migration where you have tens of thousands of black workers from the South coming north um, to get work. They're coming to these all-white spots, which is obviously going to cause some tension because people are racist and generally bad. Speaking of oppressed groups in the 1920s, um, women are taking men's old jobs in the factories. Alice Paul is leading the pacifist National Women's Party, but mainly women's suffrage is pro-war. The National American's Women's Suffrage Association, um, and, you know, everyone's doing their part. And then Wilson finally endorses suffrage, um, to quote Maureen, you should never, 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 ever, never, 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 never give Wilson credit for women's suffrage. Just to make it clear that I'm not spreading falsehoods. Um, Missouri, Oregon, South Dakota, New York, all go for it. Then British and the Australians, Australians, the Austrians and the Hungarians and the Germans all go for it. And eventually the United States gets a 19th Amendment that says women can finally vote. Um... Economic gains, though, that women's made in the labor market, labor market, economic, in the economy, um, are kind of erased after the war. Um, also, the Shep Tower Maternity Act of 1921 comes in, where basically the federal government will finance maternal education and infant care instruction. And it's sort of one of this one of the continuations of the idea that the government has responsibility for the welfare of its people, especially women and children. So back to the actual war at hand. Um, initially, people just thought that the United States was going to only need the Navy and we'll get it done. And then April, May, people sort of realized that Europe is out of money and out of men. So the United States has to raise an army very quickly. It's only the 15th largest in the world, um, so they need conscription, which passes Congress for a time. Um, a group of young men, the American Expeditionary Forces, go to Europe. Um, in the Navy, there are 4 million men and women. Uh, in the Marines, there are fewer people, some African Americans, but they're doing menial labor. No one is trained well. This is not sort of the career army men that we have today or the people that are extremely highly trained taking out crazy things or flying drones or whatnot. This is like, I'm, I'm, I'm young, I'm male, 
and I can walk 10 feet. Sign me up, please. And by sign me up, I mean I had no choice. Some point, uh, once the United States gets in, the Russian, I don't want to say empire, but the Russian status quo collapses. Um, and the Bolsheviks uh, take over, the Bolsheviks being radical communists, shouts out to Ryan Lipford, and they withdraw from the war. Um, in the meantime, the first Americans are making their push. However, with Russia out of the way and settling with Germans, um, the Germans can focus all their efforts on the French, and they have the men to beat the French. Um, the first Americans are initially used as allied replacements in really quiet zones. Um, the Germans are going west come spring 1918. So the Allies decide to unite under one leader, um, Folk, Foch, don't know. The Germans are only 40 miles away from France. So here come the Americans at the darkest moment. There's 30,000. They're coming by the busload. They're singing their songs. La da da. It's a lot of happy, happy boys. Um, they first fight at Chateau and Chateau Thierry, and they head off the Germans. Um, the Americans then counter at the Second Battle of the Marne. Uh, the Germans are forced back. The dagger of the German, um, the dagger of the German offensive is at Saint Mihiel, September 1918. The United States finally gets their own separate army under Pershing. Uh, they have a nice 85-mile front. They run an offensive on the Neuse Agrun line. About 1.2 million troops and are deployed. Um, and about 120,000 Americans are going to die in this endeavor. War, war never changes. Um, the French are running out of supplies and out of people. And by the French, I mean, okay. The French are running out of supplies. However, the Germans are suddenly out of people and they're out of food. And so they basically say to Wilson, hey, can we have a surrender based on the 14 points? Because those, those didn't sound bad. Um, Wilson says, okay, but you have to get rid of the Kaiser first. So they go and they get rid of the Kaiser. And on November 11th, um, the war is over. So overall, 9 million people die in this war. 20 million people are injured. And... 30 million people are also dying separately in a worldwide flu epidemic. 550,000 U.S. casualties are recorded. The U.S. really only fought two battles. It was just this idea of these endless American soldiers that really demoralized the Germans. Um, interestingly, Americans actually bought a lot of European gear instead of using their own homegrown gear once they got across. The main help that the United States provided was not... Men. It was their oil, it was their food, it was their munitions, and it was the credit they provided to the Allied nations. So, war's over. Wilson can now implement his 14 points, right? Right? Mm, I don't know. He sets these very high expectations for himself from the get-go, which is a mistake. He's a worldwide phenomenon. The Republicans are annoyed with him. Um, they sort of think he's being flamboyant and overdramatic. Um... The Republicans also take over Congress at this time in the midterms of 1918. And so Wilson does not have any control over Congress. And he also doesn't take any senators in his delegation to Paris where the treaty meetings are being held. The treaty, whatever it is. I'll think of the word somewhere through this 
podcast, I'll be like, oh, that's the word. Um, negotiations. What is the word I'm looking for? Peace meetings. Agreements. Maybe it's negotiations. I don't know. There, there's like a word from the West Wing when they all go to Camp David to solve the Israeli-Palestinian. Okay. Um. So Wilson does not have a lot of legitimacy because he does not have a legislative majority. Um, so he sort of comes into all this fanfare. Um, and then he sort of says, like, we're not going to take the colonies of the losers. Instead, we're going to turn them into the trustees of this new thing. And it's going to be the League of Nations. It will be a League of Nations. Um, Italy demands this seaport at the fume. Woodrow Wilson wants Yugoslavia to have it, so he appeals directly to Italians who now hate him. Um, throughout all this, Henry Cabot Lodge and Woodrow Wilson are developing a nice little rivalry, which will come in handy later. Um, ultimately, what you're seeing here is this pattern of Woodrow Wilson asking for something that is correct and ideal, but everyone else is an imperialist and only cares about themselves, and the U.S. has nothing to gain or to lose from this other than the world peace. So he is an idealist amid imperialists. So the Italians send Orlando, the British send George, the French send Clemenceau, and they're all very concerned about their own territories and their own properties. Um, and that sort of manifests itself in this League of Nations owning certain spots. So uh, the British get Iraq, the French get Syria under custody of League of Nations. I'm doing air quotes right now, but probably poorly because... My uncle says I don't know how to use air quotes correctly. Um, ultimately, the League of Nations is all that Wilson really wants, and he will sacrifice nearly anything for it. So in February, um, the French say we want the Rhineland and the Sewer Valley in Germany. Um, they get the Rhineland, but the League of Nations takes control of the Star Valley, Sor Star Valley, something like that. Um, and there will be a vote in 15 years on whether it'll be part of Germany or France. Um, so Italy now hates Woodrow Wilson. Interesting. Uh, the Japanese took Shandong and the German islands in the Pacific. Um, they get the islands under League of Nations custody. Um, Woodrow Wilson says, no, you can't have Shandong too. Um, so what happens is Japan gets the German economic stakes in Shandong, um, Wilson is willing to basically settle anything as long as he keeps his League of Nations and the Treaty of Versailles in June 1919 is finally, finally all agreed upon. Um, Germany was uninvolved in the entire process. They were expecting a 14-point treaty. They only got four of those points, which leads to a lot of vengeance and anger and eventually Hitler. And Wilson eventually even abandons his 14 points for the most important one, which is the League of Nations. The good news is it's going to go flying through the U.S. Senate without any problems, right? Wrong. Um, the isolationists are very angered by the League of Nations. So Senator William Borah and Hiram Johnson are what are called the irreconcilables. Um, other people say they bring in other people and they're very specific to their identity. It's either not harsh enough or there's not enough rights for the people that have lost or for the minorities or it's not favorable to me. 
um, or to my family and my people. Um, the majority of the country, though, likes the whole thing as a whole. So the whole idea is we're going to amend it, not destroy it. But then Lodge does this very smart political tactic where he just delays it and delays it and delays it to further and further divide the country. Um, Wilson goes across the countries making speeches as the bill is still stuck in the Senate. He's very sick. In Colorado, he goes out. He makes an impassioned cry for the bill. He cries, and then he suffers a stroke on the way back to the White House. Um, no one can agree on this treaty. Wilson is now bedridden, and the least he, it, it's fallen to Lodge to lead this fight. Um, so he comes up with 14 reservations, which basically is we're going to add 14 amendments to this based on Monroe that protect the U.S. from all this. Uh, Woodrow Wilson says, you know what? No, this is not what we signed up for. If you're a Democrat, you're going to vote against it. Um, second bill comes around. It's similar. Wilson pulls the same thing. They cannot get the two-thirds vote in the Senate. Ultimately, isolationism and Lodge and the Wilson and all of these different things come together to kill this treaty. So what he says is, you know what? The election of 1920 is going to be how we're going to settle this. Um, if you vote Democrat, we'll get this done. If not, then... Um, I guess we're just not going to have the Treaty of Versailles, but that's impossible. So the Republicans nominate Harding and Coolidge. Um, the Democrats nominate Cox and FDR. Harding um, tries to keep it a away from the treaty and away from the League of Nations, and he makes things about the woman's vote, um, and he wins by about 7 million votes. We're not going to do the blah, 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 blah thing because um, we're going to save that for Chapter 31. Um, it's about by 300 electoral votes he wins, so it's really not that close. Um, Debs, the socialist guy, gets around another million votes. Um People are sick of idealism. People don't want the League of Nations. People don't want this new ideal world with peace. They just want things to go back to normalcy. Um, and so when the U.S. rejects the League of Nations, it then just undercuts the entire thing, the entirety of the Treaty of Versailles, and really can try direct line to the U.S. undercutting the Treaty of Versailles and the League of Nations to Hitler and the Senate. The Germans say, hey, let's be united in case Germany launches another attack. And the Senate says, no thanks. And then suddenly, now Germany and, or now France is building up their military supplies. And then Germany responds in kind. So you can really tie this direct line of the failure of the U.S. to World War II. That's chapter 28. So Wilson goes after the tariffs to trust the banks, installs all this nice progressive policy. U.S. gets involved in the war at the end. 14 points, everything's going well, then we get to Versailles and everything falls apart. League of Nations doesn't work, United States isn't even part of it. And then you can really see World War II in the future. Um, that's chapter 28. Pushing the A is brought to you by the Tim Gunn bobblehead on this desk. Tim Gunn bobblehead. 
normally press a button that says make it work. Apparently not today. Dukakis Benson campaign of 1984. You'll learn about it in a month. There's a bumper sticker from when Michael Kubzanski was on the campaign. Aris wireless modem. For when you need a modem that's broken, call Aris. This is pushing the A.